Here to score it for us is the master of disaster public relations specialist, Mike Paul. Mike Paul, known as the reputation doctor. Well, there's a court of law and there's a court of public opinion. Mike Paul is a crisis PR and reputation management expert. He's all about reputation. Got some tips on rebuilding those reputations. You first have to be transparent and then be accountable for your actions. He's got to get on a truth train right now. There's no ifs or buts in a true apology. You must speak directly to the issues that you've been involved with. You're going to have to have an across-the-board solution that is more than words, and you've got to have actions. Today's guest is President Holloway of Rutgers University. Welcome, sir, to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for agreeing to be on Reputations in Crisis. Let's, let's start from that perspective. So there's a lot of issues in the news uh, from a societal perspective, from an academia perspective. Um, and we've looked at some of the issues that are happening at Rutgers. What is it you'd like to start with? Uh, from a racial reconciliation perspective or diversity, equality, and inclusion perspective, what's what's the latest news at Rutgers today? Well, the latest news is a is a bit hard to say right now because we're we're really focused on just getting back into class. I mean, we've been remote for so long. But when I introduced myself to the community in January 2020, I talked about a beloved community and the important. And I said this as much on my first day in July 1st, 2020. I talked about the importance of equity as an inclusion as key pieces of this notion of a beloved community, which is not about, hey, we all need to agree with each other. That's one impossible, two, and it's very unhealthy at a university. But it right. is about the importance of recognizing it, no matter your background, no matter your home language, your racial background, your cultural upbringing, your college-going tradition, uh, no matter what it is, you all have something in common. That's the thing called Rutgers whether you're a student, staff, faculty, it doesn't matter what, you have something in common. If we recognize that, then so many of these other moments of crisis, uh, of, of reconciliation, um, uh, so on and so forth, uh, reckoning, those become less difficult to navigate. They'll, they'll still be with us because we're part of society, but they'll become less difficult to navigate. So the extent that I can help that ethos become part of who we are, then we're doing something good. I think of universities as beloved communities. They are far from perfect, but they are deeply committed to the pursuit of perfection. In order to be well prepared for that pursuit, I feel it is important to be guided by some core beliefs. I believe that everyone in this beloved community has an important role to play and deserves to be recognized and respected for a job well done. And this especially includes those who do the so-called invisible work at a university, assistance of all types, dining hall workers, bus drivers, maintenance crews, etc. I believe that excellence can be found everywhere and that well-informed and inclusive <laughs> leaders understand that it can be found in what are historically considered unexpected places. I believe that a recognition of leadership is earned and that the best way to earn it is to act with integrity in everything <clears throat> that one does. Well, I think that's a, a great place to start and I agree with uh, everything that you said from that perspective. Tell us a little bit about your background. So you, what was your major in college? How are these issues something that you are uh, very prepared for? 
as compared to maybe, let's say, some other uh, university presidents around the country. Uh, let's, let's start from that perspective. I was an undergrad at Stanford University, uh, majored in American studies. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I majored in American studies because history and English both had foreign language requirements and American studies didn't, so I just slide right on through. That's all changed, but I love being in American studies and I love being in that space because it was a merger of different ways of looking at things, history, English, political science. And that's really served me well going forward. I did some work in public affairs, public policy for a year, then went to grad school. And I'm a historian by training who specializes in, in the post-emancipation American experience, the focus on African-American experience. And I think given the way, the where we are in the world right now, the way yes. we are structured, textured, whatever, uh, someone with a sensibility that is informed by being interdisciplinary, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, coming together to find an answer in between. Someone who is raised uh, in a history and literature uh, that speaks to people who are often written out of history or written out of literature. The skill sets that come from those experiences are embodied in what I bring to the table. And so I think that's actually very valuable at this point in time. And the world has, especially the past few years, really heard a, a different proactive voice when it comes to current day civil rights issues, issues of race, reckoning with where our country is today in dealing with its foundation historically in race and slavery being a part of that. One of the issues that came up recently is a statue that is on one of the campuses that is from, I actually uh, was raised, I was born in Brooklyn, but I was raised in Huntington, Long Island. So I know the, the name Walt Whitman quite well because he has a history in Huntington as well. What is the uh, challenge or discrepancy with Walt Whitman and the statue that people should know about? Well, the statue is um, in honor of Walt Whitman, who was sort of a, what I'll call a native son of Camden, not affiliated with Rutgers in any, any way, but just of Camden. And it was in the middle of one of the few courtyards on the Camden campus, which is a small campus. And prior to my arrival, there were uh, petitions and conversations about how Camden was memorializing, who it cho chose to memorialize, who it chose to honor. And Walt Whitman, brilliant, brilliant writer, I mean, really important to the American canon, also, you know, had views as that were not unusual in his time, but that were that were particularly pungent in the way that Walt Whitman could express things when it came to racial matters or racial citizens, um, uh, Blacks most specifically, and their human uh, capability. It's a tough thing to read for someone who enjoys Walt Whitman's poetry, for example. So um, the leadership at Camden had an extended conversation led by scholars about what can we do that will not erase Whitman from his important role in Camden, but will contextualize Whitman. And that's an important thing. So the statue is being relocated to a what, I'll, what I can best describe as a quiet glen on campus next to this, this um, particularly old tree. I don't quote me on the type of tree, I don't know, um, but, but one of the oldest trees in the area and actually, um, and, and there will be some contextualizing language the marker that goes up that talks about um, the humanity of Whitman. And when I say the humanity, that's, I mean that in a very rigorous way, because we are, as humans, we are all flawed creatures. Yes. And we can talk about someone's greatness 
and also talk about how they fell short of that greatness in their lifetime. But putting uh, Whitman in this verdant glen, in this space with other, um, with, with uh, remarkable uh, trees and things like that, really speaks metaphorically to his role as one of our most important uh, literary figures talking about nature and the environment. So I think it's an elegant solution, um, but the the interim chancellor of Camden, Margaret Marsh, who, who's stepped down July 1, uh, is a historian like me, and she is very sensitive, just like I am, to anything that suggests historical erasure. We don't yes. want to be in that. We don't want to be in that game. We're trying to do something different. And to that point, there are some people who take this issue beyond Whitman and go to the name of Rutgers University that uh, historically is named after a, a gentleman who owned slaves. There are some people that are upset about that. To your point of not wanting to erase, but remember, and I saw one of your press conferences where you were discussing this issue and you said you're open-minded to hear various views. We're a university, that's important. But at least at this time, there's nothing that is going to change the name of Rutgers as Rutgers University, whether it's a slave owner or not. That's right. I mean, the, the fact is we are a very old institution, founded in 1766 under a different name, and the name evolved over time. Anything that old in this country will have the blood money of slavery attached to it. If it's still surviving, it will. That doesn't make the slave economy okay. It's never okay. But we have to be realistic at what the past was and honest about it. And so for me, it is not that I am trying to celebrate Henry Rutgers. That's not my ambition at all. But I will celebrate the institution that carries the name Rutgers, which, let's face it, is quite disembodied from the individual. And we will be talking in very open ways about those parts of Rutgers, the university's past, that relied upon forced labor, the building of the first structures on campus. Or we will be honest about the fact that some of the founding leaders of the university were, were involved in the slave economy. It's hard to imagine how they could not have been, given their standing in the community and the economy that the world was in this, what became this country. Um, this is not about trying to say shame, shame, shame on contemporary contemporaries who might have that name, you know, descendants and such. That, that's, that's not what this is about. We're not trying right. to wag our finger at anybody. We're simply trying to be honest with the past. So yes, I'm not gonna change the name of the university. That's, that's too many things to unpack. The name has value after all. It's not Henry Rutgers University. It's, it's Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey after all. Um, but we're also not going to hide from these things either, because hiding, as you well know, is the first step towards a crisis. That's right. That's right. And the, the activism that all universities around the world are dealing with includes technology, includes passionate hearts on various sides of issues. As a university president today, how has the social media and speed aspect of dealing with these issues impacted how you, you manage and, and, and deal with these issues overall? Well, it's a really important question. The fact is administrations cannot keep up with the pace of this kind of communication and importantly, nor should they. 
in the sense that students or in whomever, activists that sign an electronic petition and send it to you, and they want change right away, um, I'm not, I'm going to say no. That's the first response because I don't necessarily know all the circumstances. They are representing one piece of the puzzle. I need to know there might be 48 other pieces to that puzzle. And my job as president is to try to understand the landscape. Now, people can then say, well, you know, you're moving too slowly. You don't care about us. I'm like, my job is to care about your health and safety, first of all. My job is also to care about the university long-term. And if I start making snap decisions, that will actually destabilize the institution and will create more problems going on. I can't just think of none of my none of my solutions to whatever's in front of me is a one-off solution. If I decide something or any president, that becomes a precedent or that because, well, if you did that for this person, you got to do it for the next person. So it is really about trying to manage decisions, not in real time, but in larger context. And that is never satisfactory to activists, regardless of the issue. I know I, I lived in that space too, wanting something changed right away. Um, that's just a, a fact of thing, but social media doesn't, um, it ignores the fact that we humans are social creatures. We aren't socially mediated creatures. So social media strips of the humanity out of the process. Right. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to participate in that, which look, it's very hard because people, you know, the petitions of 3000, 15,000, 30,000, you can't ignore them. Right. But you know, the fact is none of those people came to make a point in my office. None of the people came to talk with me. Nobody wanted to hear another side of the equation too often, not every single time. Well, if you're not willing to talk with me face to face, I don't see how we're going to move anything, you know? So social media, it's, it's done some amazing things for many people. Uh, I think it has actually, um, we have not as a society figured out how to use it to its best in- interests, especially when it comes to running something as complex as an institution like the university. And it can be utilized both proactively and reactively, but at, at what expense of not studying the issues first? Exactly. Right? I mean, just think of our current healthcare crisis as the the coordinated disinformation has literal lethal consequences for the public. And yet here we are, you know, in that social media for you, unfortunately. I had a very good relationship and, and continue to have a good relationship with the former president of the United States, Barack Obama. I ironically also knew previous president Donald Trump as well, because I worked in politics before I was in PR as a, as a top aide here in New York, and you could not do business in New York without knowing him. And I know the difference between the struggles that the two men had to deal with, uh, especially one being a different kind of first because of the color of his skin. What is it like to be the first black president of Rutgers University? You know, it's, it's, I, I know exactly what you're asking, and I'm gonna, but I'm going to answer it in a little bit different way. Heck, if I know, I mean, I get out of bed looking like this. You know, is I've always gotten out of bed looking like this. <laughs> me too. <laughs> so, so for me, it's just a normal day. But I do recognize, of course, I recognize the importance symbolically, institutionally, put in other 
uh, adjectives in there about what it means to have the first black president of the institution, especially one that goes that predates the establishment of the country. It's a big deal. When I was asked this question at my first press conference after I was named, I answered, paraphrasing my, myself, like, look, I th- I'm pretty confident of my abilities. I think I can do a lot of great things. Um, but I also don't think I'm so special that it makes sense that, that I'm the first African-American who should be leading Rutgers. It's 254 years old. There have been plenty of people far more talented than I am who could have been the first 10 years earlier, 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier. And yet here we are. So hats off to the board of governors who um, saw an opportunity in me and and wanted to have me lead the institution. I appreciate that that vote of confidence. Um, What it means in practical sense is that um, whole communities of people who have never seen someone who looked like them in these positions, see somebody who looks like them and that that means something, you know. Now, yes. what it means depends on the situation. So, um, one of the challenges, and I know um, Barack Obama faced this, is the, a level of expectation of delivery on issues that are so-called related to the Black community that no one person can reasonably deliver upon. Like you got to build a system and a culture and a practice and and um, set of policies that would deliver on it. One person can't do it. So there, there is sort of a, a kind of a ridiculous burden that comes along with this incredible honor of, um, of being the first black person to do anything. Uh, it's just a little more complicated in my place and situation because it's such a public position. Right. But that's okay. I mean, that's just, I mean, I, I, that's the deal. You know, I've, like I said, I wake up every day looking like this. So, you know, <laughs> let's just get to work is my attitude. And what of the converse of that? What of Barack Obama like to say on a daily basis, and he reminded his staff, obviously our job is to govern all of the people. Um, and with that blackness that doesn't go away, and he wakes up every morning to be who he is, uh, there's a different expectation, at least most people would think so, for those who aren't used to seeing not just someone that looks like them there, but the, but the majority, who is quickly becoming the minority, let's say powerful white men, who are not used to, and some of them might even be honest enough to tell you, I've never been in a meeting that was run with a black man in power. What is that like? Well, no one's been that honest with me. They've, they've held their tongue, but I know it's the case. I mean, I know I was just on a Zoom call earlier today with a few other uh, not two other black presidents and um, an Asian American former president of university. And we were talking about the script that's written the moment each of us would walk in the room. That there's the presumption that because I look a certain way or have a certain gender or have a certain sexuality or am a certain height, they've written the script within five seconds. And we all do that, right? right. It's just that some scripts are more powerful than others, are more controlling than others. So I'm, I'm pragmatic about it. Like, I get all that. What I um, counter with, I suppose, is that I tap into the full range of my humanity, <laughs> that I don't have Black thoughts. I have thoughts. You know, I don't have a Black way of, like, blinking. I blink my eyes. I mean, there's just, there are 
I mean, the way I see the world is colored by, and use that word intentionally, a certain set of experiences, yes. But the fact is, we share more in common than we don't. We love, we want to take care of our own, our own, I'm talking here, our children, if we have them, our families. Yes. Yes. We want food, we want clothing, we want shelter. Anything other than that is, you know, kind of less important. So I try to meet people at the level of basic shared desires. And in the process, inevitably, it seems, while they may not say, I've never met anybody or been in a room with someone like you, a Black person, inevitably, they'll say something that is kind of code for that. Yes. And it may be, if you remember, you know, Biden, he's so articulate and clean. Well, heck, if someone's running for president, I would expect them to be articulate, frankly. <laughs> Someone who's, you know, trained academically where he was, I'd expect him to be articulate. Clean, well, that's, you know, that's just good habits. But, but there are, when people would make reference to me about a certain place, like, oh, I know that, I've been there, <laughs> you know, I've been, and that kind of can destabilize people. I'm like, yeah, black folks know lots of things. We go lots of places. We have lots of experiences. And given the fact, if this person's involved in higher ed at some level, whether as a donor or something like that, I'm in the world of higher ed and really of, of very high level research oriented higher ed. The fact is we are going to be overlapping uh, in some ways because the world is just too small. Like we will know the same people. And that moment, when that happens, is the telling moment. If right. people like, if how quickly they can recalibrate that script, like, oh, 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 so he knows these places, this person at these places. The other thing that helps me out, frankly, even though I had no success playing football in college, I was on the football team, the fact that I was, you know, a varsity athlete in college changes the script for some people because I have that and I have a PhD, you know, that and I write books. I cover a lot of territory in doing that. And the fact I grew up in a military family. So I cover lots of bases with people. And I just try to find their base and say, yeah, I share some of that. Let's get to business. In the 60s, there was a lot of challenges on colleges and university campuses around America. And Rutgers has a history that I, I read about, similar to Columbia, where I went to school, where some students decided it was time for them to not just have their voice heard, but to take over a building and hope to bring more attention to an issue. Not only reflecting on that history and your opinion of that from a Rutgers perspective or, a, or a, an American perspective as a historian, I'm a crisis guy. Is there any concern for those types of things today as issues continue to get heated? And how do you grapple with the difference between the issues of the 60s and the way they dealt with it and what might be an option for students today? The admissions process was actually intentionally avoiding the recruitment of black students. In fact, a uh, large number of applicants that had come in from African-American students were actually put aside and treated differently. So the groundwork was laid for members of the Black Organization of Students 
to take over Conklin Hall on the Newark campus of Rutgers University. Forty years later, a commemoration was held. We felt we were jeopardizing our careers or our education and also there was always the hint based upon what had happened in 67 that we could be uh, violently uh, reacted to by the uh, governmental forces. Stand up with us now. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. All of you stand up. If you want to be heard, stand up. If you take a look around this room, you'll see all around the periphery the flags of over 75 countries. This campus is now listed by U.S. News and World Report as the most diverse university campus in the country, in the United States. Uh, and so the distance from a time when it used to be a lily white campus to the point now where it's the most diverse campus in the country is an extraordinary distance that we've come. And I think those students at that time were the ones that gave this the push and we owe them a tremendous debt of gratitude. Great question. Yeah, we're concerned about it. Absolutely. I mean, in the when Derek Chauvin was on, on trial and the verdict was, you know, they announced the verdict was going to be coming quicker than any of us thought. And none of us knew what to expect. Right. Uh, you know, we had a quick um, sort of a crisis meeting, like we got to get a communications out right away because I and others were anticipating what I'll call a mixed verdict and 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 we're anticipating riots thinking of the upheaval from the 60s and the 70s. That didn't happen. I mean, that, thank God that didn't happen for many different reasons. But the fact is students are animated in ways they haven't been in, in 50, 60 years now. And by and large, I think that's a good thing. I don't always agree with them, but the fact is they're pushing, they're questioning, they're challenging, uh, often in very substantive ways. That's important. And that's just part of a learning and growing process. For me, the difference in how to deal with that is that, and it goes back to something you, you asked me, I think with the first question about my own background and what I bring to this, the table, is that, um, well, I'll just cite a couple of examples from my past very quickly. When students, I was, I was previously taught and was an administrator at Yale and was an administrator at Northwestern Universities. And on both campuses, there were moments when students of color and their allies were really upset about a situation and we're, we're making a lot of noise about it. And the trustees were not happy about it. And in both instances, I talked to the trustees and said, look, they, you may not like their method, but they're doing exactly what they've been trained to do. They're asking very hard questions of an institution and they're raising their voice. People were saying, well, this is, you know, they are, they are silencing other people. They're doing these things. I'm like, actually, no, they're not. Uh, they are raising their voices. I mean, this, they, aren't, they weren't burning anything. They were just speaking up. I said, I, didn't, you know, I don't like what they said or what they did. But what they're doing is a free speech act. It's just that it's speech we don't like. But you know what? That's tough. I mean, we are in the business of creating a space for speech we don't like so that we can all learn to do something better. So my approach, I think, might be different from maybe the presence of the 60s who were just like, shut it down. It's like, no, 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 no. We brought these students here. They are part of us. They're going to make us better. We need to listen to them. That doesn't mean they're right, but we need to listen to them. And that act of 
being engaged in that way of making it clear that they are doing, they, in this case, the activated students are doing something that's in a tradition that's important to this universe, to this country. We need to take it seriously. And so it's, it's um, really about engaging the students where they are, trying to understand where they're coming from and educate them to the extent that they need to be. And also maybe educating ourselves to the extent we need to be as university leaders. That's, that's where I'm, that's where I'm oriented. Final two questions. I know New Jersey pretty well. Um, I know America pretty well, at least from a political perspective and a communications perspective. Um, New Jersey is a tough place to govern, uh, a tough place to work, a tough place to be a leader. The governor has certainly learned that. Some would say he had a stricter and more focused ability with some issues early on. And then when he got a little beat up with some of the issues because he realized, wow, there's a lot of people here who don't think the way I do. Um, he felt he needed to come down the middle and be more of a compromiser. Do you feel some of that pressure as well within New Jersey? Of course, your student body and your stakeholders come from beyond New Jersey, but what is it like to be in the midst of that in a state like New Jersey with a country and a state that are pretty much divided on a lot of issues in society today? You know, it's a, it's, it's a sort of hard for me to answer because I joined as a COVID president. So we moved here the end of June last year. Rutgers has a census of over 1,200 buildings. I've been in 25 of them. And most of that's been in the last few months, post-vaccination, post-things beginning to open up. So right. I really have a very limited set of experiences to... Um, the rough and tumble of New Jersey politics. It'll come, I know that. But for me, one, I've had the honeymoon. We've all been in a COVID crisis together. And I think especially because I'm from out of state, although I have family already in Northern and Southern New Jersey, I'm an out of state person who didn't have ties to Rutgers beyond a professor and having colleagues here. So I'm everybody's friend coming in the door. That won't last. I know that. I'm talking... In, in terms of the governor's office, the Senate and the, the assembly, I get along with everybody. Um, the real test, you know, ask me that question in two years and we'll see, cause I will have stumbled certainly. Um, I'll have had to stake positions out that are unpopular and then we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Final question is ironically about the pandemic and, and COVID, not just past, but we're still in it. The Delta variant is, a tough and tumble. We are still learning about it. There are a lot of people who have still not gotten vaccinated. Tell me if you agree with this assessment and what your plans might be for the fall. Since January of last year, I've been doing crisis work around the globe, not just here with leaders. And I told them early on this going back message that everyone had, even back in January of last year, before it was really a big story here, uh, in, in March, we really started getting more public messages, but there were researchers and scientists and WHO and CDC that were having conversations with leaders. And I said, getting back to normal will include four major legs of the chair. Safe childcare, safe schools, safe public transportation, anywhere in the world, and safe office towers. Do you agree with that assessment? And if you do, 
what does it look like for a university this fall where we have to make decisions? Some schools, for example, we're already seeing on TV are opening in the middle of August before we get into September. And we have changes that are happening at the speed of light with the variant as we speak on a calendar that doesn't have much time. I mean, I think those four legs of the chair make abundant sense to me. I was on the, uh, Governor Murphy's Restart Recovery Commission, and one of the very early conversations is about, and this was last, in April, this was April of 2020, um, May of 2020, there are conversations about how to um, clean schools. I'm talking K through 12 spaces. And, you know, people were trying to sort that out. And then someone said, well, if we can't get the buses clean, it's pointless. And then I learned about how the bus system worked in New Jersey. And you start seeing the spiraling complexity of trying to get to um, um, a, a, a reopening. For me, it's really simple. You get vaccinated. We've mandated for our students because they are the ones in congregate living and congregate dining. And I've been getting... Uh, very pointed emails about that and got a petition today in fact challenging me on this for legal reasons ethical reasons and organizational reasons we are steadfast though it's to me it's pretty darn simple we get vaccinated with the staff and faculty i think they should get vaccinated as well we have a little more complications here about mandating it if it were easy for me to do i'd mandate it in a half second because we are lucky to live in a highly vaccinated state that is in new jersey where we're looking at probably 70% of the people who are eligibly vaccinated already have, are, are vaccinated. It is, if I see opening up as an easier path forward, our students will be vaccinated or they will not be on campus. And our faculty and staff by and large will be vaccinated, 70%. So I think net, net we're gonna be looking at a community that's about when you, when you look in percentages of population, about 85% vaccinated. It's gonna be hard to do much better than that. Um, so for me, uh, the, the answer to these complexities is pretty straightforward. I mean, we know, science knows what the answer is. It is um, the way it's been politicized is making this so incredibly difficult. Now, you talked about all these other aspects that are related to opening up and, um, you know, safe towers, safe uh, health, uh, um, child care safe classrooms, and I forgot one, but... Public transportation. Transportation, yeah. When I think of other universe, we are, we are a flat campus by and large. I have a friend, uh, several friends who are presidents of New York City universities, and they're vertical. That's a whole different infrastructure presents a whole different challenge to them. Right. Elevators, airflows, all these kinds of things. You know, so this virus and how you respond to it is situationally dependent. At Rutgers, we think we've got our hands on it pretty well. Not perfect, but pretty well. So I think we'll be opening up just fine. And one quick follow-up. Large groups, so a lot of parties where people congregate in larger groups, football games, outdoor sporting events. Do you think that will be an issue with the variant, or is it going to be okay to come together in a stadium, for example? It won't be perfect, but it'll be okay. The fact is, because we're mandating the vaccine. Look, we are not going to start stop 18 and 19 year olds from having parties. They are built to have parties. They're going to have them. That's why the vaccine is so critical, because that is the best guarantee of their safety. Um, stadium, uh, the football stadium, 
it's outdoors. That is, that, I mean, if it was an indoor facility, uh, and especially a, with a smaller airflow capacity, that'd be a whole different kind of conversation. You know, but I'm saying this on July 26th. You know, where are we in August 17th? I don't know. Delta is that, you know, and then whatever the next variant is, because people won't get vaccinated, I don't know. So um, that's where we are today. We'll see where we are in a month's time and a month's time after that. Uh, I think we're going to be okay. I think the real, the real concern I have is what happens when the weather gets cold in New Jersey and we start moving indoors for large events. That I don't have the answer to yet. Nobody does, except for if, if we're having a basketball game today, we'd be wearing masks inside. I'm sure of that. That just seems prudent. And it also seems like a minimal ask uh, uh, in this particular moment to be continued. I think that's a wise answer. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for your time. And I know my friend Tom Mattia would say thank you as well. Uh, he's uh, a great man and uh, a proud Rutgers graduate, as he likes to tell me often. Uh, so I really appreciate your time. Thank you. My, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Our t-shirt for the day this week is a great organization called Today I'm Brave. They also have something called Brave Camps for inner city kids and a terrific organization that is uh, helping society. So we thank them so much for sending us a t-shirt. I thank President Holloway uh, for coming and telling us all about Rutgers University and the challenges they're also going through dealing with today's society from a racism perspective, from a diversity, equality, and inclusion perspective. I will say this one thing. It's difficult to compromise on some issues that deal with ethics and morality. Always a very tough thing for any leader. And it's one thing to say that you're open to talking about issues, but to make a decision before you have the ongoing talking and studying of, let's say, for example, the name of Rutgers University and saying that we are not going to change the name. Let's see how that plays out in the future, because just how he said he has an open mind to see what's going to happen a month from now and a month after that, regarding the pandemic, my advice to him as a crisis counselor would be, I think it's smart to be open-minded about a potential name change too. If the heat continues to be as hot as it seems to be about a slave owner name still being tied to the university, as well as not just listening to the students and other stakeholders, but also being open to potential change from their point of view. But we thank him for being on the show. He had some great messages. Rutgers is an excellent university. Let's see how they move forward with some of the issues that they're grappling with right now. Thank you so much for tuning in to Reputations in Crisis and listening also. You can find our show on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And remember, less head work more hard work, peace. Till next week, this is Reputations in Crisis with Mike Paul, the Rep Doc.
Thank you.